Riling his defender, Leal onto his right foot. The cross is a good one. Right in front, headed down, and Cadiz scores. There's the impact. Nashville finds its way through. Two matches, two goals scored in each, two goals surrendered in each, two draws, and two points. Deuces are wild for Nashville SC after the first couple of games, and Nashville SC's playing style pretty wild, too. Welcome to the Club and Country Podcast, the podcast of record for Nashville SC coverage from two people who've covered the club longer than anyone in their respective disciplines. I am Nashville SC radio commentator Wes Bowling. And I am Tim Sullivan, the proprietor of ClubCountryUSA.com, the namesake of this podcast. The namesake, the original, the OG. Special thanks to Moon Taxi for the jams at the beginning of the show and to ESPN 94.9 for the highlights you heard at the beginning and will hear throughout this show. Tim, have you caught your breath yet? A, from the Nashville SC match and B, from the media extravaganza that we had on the soccer pitch on Sunday. Yeah, definitely from the from the Nashville SC game. I think it'll take me weeks to recover from the media game that we played the other day. So hopefully... I'm overestimating and I can I can undershoot that and feel a lot better within the next couple days here. Later today, you'll hear from one of the candidates for man of the match in that contest. John Freeman, the radio voice of Nashville Soccer Club, is our guest today. Really look forward to catching up with him to talk about this year's team and also about some of his memories going back even before USL, even before you and I started covering the club, Tim. Somehow he predates us. He's got to be the only one, one still kicking it, still uh, covering the club in, in the ways that he is that has been around as long as we have for sure i think probably so in the meantime our goal is to get off to a better start than nashville has in its first two matches and we're confident we'll be able to finish about as strong as the boys in gold because we've got a great show for you today in the early shout we'll give you some gold nuggets that take you deep into nashville's 2-2 draw with montreal and then we'll answer the question i think we've all been asking since nashville's second consecutive come from behind draw do back-to-back two-goal deficits reflect something about this team's identity or were they the result of fluky goals and a stroke of bad luck then we'll dive into a debate would you rather the team earn thrilling draws or lackluster wins. It is the everlasting, ever-present soccer debate of style versus results, and we'll have it on the show today. And after that, as mentioned, thrilled to welcome Nashville SC radio voice John Freeman to the show. And then finally, you have loaded up our inbox again. We'll get to your mailbag questions before blowing the final whistle. Nashville attacking in waves. Alistair Johnston close to the end line. The cross hoisted in towards the pond. I don't know. Rebound moves on. He scores! Turn it up! They have done it again! The boys in goal, their second strike, and it is level in Tennessee! Thanks to ESPN 94.9 for the call. That is Hani Mukhtar's equalizer that ended up giving us the final score of 2-2 between Nashville and Montreal. And with that, we'll move into our early shout. Tim, Nashville comes from behind after yet again a 2-0 first-half hole. Montreal goals in the 13th minute and the 42nd. Nashville responds via Yonder Cadiz in the 54th and Hani Mukhtar in the 77th. Here is what Gary Smith had to say immediately after the match. It felt like deja vu a little bit. A big hole to dig ourselves out of. Nowhere near as, of course, many efforts at goal, but you're just not going to get that against good teams. However, a far more positive and and aggressive display, uh, almost from 
you know, the middle part of the first half on. And, and to be honest, you know, that's going to prove far too difficult ongoing to, to keep dragging ourselves out of. So I'm pleased we got a point and we haven't been beaten. Uh, I'm, I'm frustrated that we've conceded two goals and I'm, I'm very frustrated that we haven't won one of these two first home games. So, Tim, Montreal took the first four shots, and then Nashville took 18 of the next 22. That's a positive in terms of, of gathering and chasing the game and, and summoning the ability to tie things up. But Nashville didn't touch the ball in its final third until a Cadiz run almost eight minutes into the contest. And, of course, now they've been outscored 4-1 in the first 42 minutes of matches. You asked Gary if he saw commonalities between the slow starts in those first two contests. And what did you make of his response? He was clear after the game. He thinks Nashville might be tilted a little bit too far towards attacking, particularly early in games. It's something that we saw happen in the second year of USL as well. They they were scoring a lot more goals, but they were also allowing a lot more goals. So uh, it's clear that he thinks there's been a bit of bad luck. I think you could say all four of the goals that opponents have scored have either been a world-class play by Lucho Acosta or, or Mason Toy or have involved a, a bit of fortuitous uh, bounces for each of them. So I found it interesting that he admitted that the team seemed to not be game ready for the Cincinnati game uh, with the weirdness of the preseason that basically wasn't. But in the Montreal game, he said, you know, we just didn't show up to play. It wasn't because we didn't feel prepared. It just didn't happen for us on the day. Either way, it's taken that sort of fortune for those opponents to build up those 2 nothing leads. But certainly um, Nashville's lack of ability to prevent that from happening is something that's that's come into play in each of them. They find themselves again facing this, this lack of confidence early on. A couple of Daniel Lovett's back passes that went awry. One resulted in a goal. One resulted in a long shot by Georgi Mihailovic just almost two minutes into the contest. So against Cincy, I think you, you can sign me up for the bad luck card. You know, giving up a goal on your only non-PK shot on target, seeing the opposing keeper save 11 shots, and then that same defense give up five set-piece goals the following week, albeit with Teton, the keeper, out of the match against New York. Uh, against Montreal, though, I think Nashville made its own bad luck, uh, not just by going down 2-0, but also then by failing to convert clear chances inside the box. Um, the first three times that first four times rather that that Nashville sent the ball into the six yard area it wasn't able to manage a shot on target in those four situations the first three of those times didn't even get a shot off Clement Diop played out of his mind played really Mm -hmm. tough early on in that contest but Tim my bigger concern is not giving up the goals because I think we've seen a defense that's going to shore itself up and, and can be elite in this league it's the failure to capitalize on the numerous chances early in these matches that Nashville's creating yeah, and that's part of that bad luck, too. I feel like Shemislaw Teton had a game that we have never seen him have that quality of game in Major League Soccer. Um, Clement Diop is, is a much better, more proven goalkeeper, but he had one of the games of his life against the boys in gold as well. So it's something where it's, it's not like Nashville wasn't testing them, although at times they, they are shooting off target for sure. But Diop made a number of great saves, and you know, sometimes the ball just falls away. In, in hockey, they call it puck luck, and, and Nashville's on the wrong side of that and on the soccer pitch. Gold Nuggets for the match. Some notes that you may or may not know about the contest as we look to dig a little deeper into the why and not just the what. And number one, Tim, Nashville up to 50 shots now through its first two games. Yeah, it took them four games to get to that mark last year. So that's something where you're seeing the team, as we've already mentioned, show a little bit more offensive uh, desire, not necessarily the ability to to finish those offensive chances. That's twice as quick to the, to the same mark. And that's something that I think fans might be excited to see. We'll talk about that a little bit later, but it's also something that 
doesn't mean a whole lot if you aren't putting the ball in the back of the net. Four goals allowed through two games on the other end as they've turned the attacking nozzle on pretty heavily and it's left them vulnerable in defense. Yeah, it took five games to get to that point last year. So that's something that, again, is maybe indicative of a, of a change in style a little bit. But the first three goals uh, last year came on a 0.5 total XG between those two games against Portland and Atlanta. The defense was extremely tight and got really bad luck. We are still seeing bad luck this year, but it's not the same degree of bad luck. And I think the fact that the expectations for this Nashville SC team are different is, is probably the part that makes it feel worse than it is. And of course, the fact that, uh, you know, when you play Cincinnati and Montreal, the, the expectations might be a little bit different than when you're playing Atlanta and Portland too. You talk about XG and about positive underlying metrics. And I think there are a couple things that should give Nashville supporters a whole lot of hope. Number one, Nashville had 31 touches inside the box against Montreal, 45 against Cincinnati. So 76 touches inside the 18-yard area, give or take one or two, as I was trying to eagle-eye the touch map that, that Opta gave us. Opponents, again, Nashville is 76, right? Opponents with 26 touches inside the box. So you talk about bad luck. You talk about taking advantage of your opportunities. And Nashville has really had the lion's share of the opportunities, not just in chasing the game, but against Montreal even early on. Yeah, it's something I noticed, you know, you talked a little bit about the uh, possession earlier. I noticed I was staring up at the scoreboard off to the left of the press box er, in the early stages of the game. And it was like 70% Nashville possession. And then, you know, three passes later, it's 65% Montreal possession. But over the course of that first half, it did not feel like Montreal was dominating the game. It was just a matter of making good on that one Mason toy chance. And then, of course, obviously the later deflected one. And that's what they do. They're a counterattacking team to begin mm -hmm. with. It was a 52% Montreal swing in possession the first 15 minutes. From minutes 16 to 30, it was 52% Nashville. From 31 to 45, it was something like 70% Nashville possession. Yeah. Absolutely barnstorming uh, was Nashville after this low start. And, and shots inside the box now in two matches in favor of Nashville, 39-8. to eight. 39 shots inside the area, and Montreal had just three last weekend. So you would like to think if those opportunities can continue to manifest themselves and even something approaching that frequency, that Nashville will find itself uh, getting three points instead of the one. Uh, Nashville now leads MLS, final gold nugget here, in shots by double digits by 10, in shots on target by more than 50% over second place New York City FC, key passes, expected goals, percent of long balls completed as they've had some success switching field and, and opening up those opportunities and their second Tim in total passes. Again, metrics we certainly would not have expected from this team, even though they might have come at the expense of letting in some goals on the defensive end. Yeah, it's Pep Guardiola's Nashville soccer club, right? That's right, of course. <laughs> <laughs> Manchester City, Nashville SC, no difference, right? None whatsoever. Exactly. Tiki Taka in Music City. Well, let's uh, move on now to our next segment and embrace consensus. Gary Smith talked after the match and really has talked all offseason about wanting to excite fans. And his team certainly delivered in the first two matches of the year. And we'll talk for a minute about whether that's for better or for worse. First of all, here's what Gary had to say after the contest. I want to win every home game. I want the fans to be entertained. I want to be in a position where we're challenging for the playoffs and for silverware. And there's a short-term and long-term aim to everything we do. Two thrilling draws. Certainly the antithesis of what we saw, Tim, from Nashville SC last year. If you had to choose, would you rather have thrilling draws or grind out one nothing results? I'll cheat first and say I would like to have thrilling wins. Of course. Uh, but... 
having to choose between the two, of course. And I know uh, this is a franchise trying to get butts in seats. They want that excitement. They want the high flying nature to kind of show. But I think they really want to see points on the table. A good Nashville team is more sellable than a Nashville team that's exciting, but not good. Um, Smith was very clear that his club expects to earn both wins and fans from its exciting style of play but I don't think there needs to be too much of a sacrifice in the latter to earn the former but uh, certainly excitement doesn't get you into the playoffs I guess is the best way to put it (laughs) well said and it goes back to that everlasting paradigm in soccer between style and results and there are some cultures there are some fan bases you know go to a place like like South America and they want flair they want style they want attractive soccer and if that results in exciting draws, ultimately, you know, the head's going to be on the chopping block if you don't get the results. But they would prefer exciting soccer to those one nothing. And then, of course, you go to people like Jose Mourinho, who has just killed the confidence of every attack he's ever led, you know, whether he's in Chelsea or in Manchester or more recently in, in Tottenham. And uh, and you can criticize that all you want, but the guy got results in, uh, you know, one in Europe, one in England and uh, and elsewhere. I fall certainly on the side of the paradigm of of thrilling draws, but not just because I love them from a radio broadcaster Consensus standpoint. Consensus non-embraced. Consensus non-embraced, <laughs> exactly. I, I like I like a thrilling draw because at this point, I think Nashville's meeting its benchmarks. And that may sound silly to be at two points and 17th in the table. But when, when Mike Jacobs talked with us a couple of weeks ago, he said the aspiration is to win every match. The objective, though is something more than that. And he wouldn't really get into what those benchmarks were, but I talked with Gary Smith for the 1025 special, and he said on air that that it was about being a more attacking team. And ultimately, when Nashville is in Philadelphia, you know, or in Columbus, they're going to need to rely on the ability to summon goals late in the match. And it may be a, a 1-1 contest, a scoreless draw. They need to rely on, on that. I think they know they can rely on their defense in key moments late in matches. And so for me to see them planting seeds of attacking success early in contests, that they especially late in contests, uh, to me that's almost a better indicator at this point, Tim, of Nashville's quality and its growth than points, at least after two matches. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. If the, if the draws are thrilling, but you're having massive XG advantages in each game, you can feel the confidence that the results will eventually come. If you're grinding out one nothing wins but getting dominated in, in XG battles, uh, more likely than not, you're going to end up maybe turning some of those into thrilling draws down the road when you really need the points. And here's the kicker for me, where I think we're going to come back together into our land of consensus, is that, <laughs> that while XG, XG and goals tend to regulate a bit as the season goes on, a thrilling match means nothing if you aren't testing the keeper. And, of course, Nashville tested the keeper uh, against Cincinnati and to a lesser extent, but still nicely against Montreal. But, you know, they've sent in 39 crosses. That's third in Major League Soccer. But they've completed just six of those crosses inside the penalty area. You certainly expect precision to come in the attack as as the season goes on, but it's going to need to come quickly. If they're going to continue to create chances, they need to be able to convert a little more crisply. I think XG will tell you and the eye test will tell you they should have had probably four goals in each of those matches at the very least. Yeah. And I think one thing that they would really prefer not to do is, is be chasing a game. Cause that's when you end up whipping in a lot of those crosses, which is uh, it, it looks pretty, but it, and it can be effective. We've obviously seen it score a couple of goals for Nashville this year, but it's not necessarily uh, the most replicable form of offense. And that's something that they would much prefer to be so, something that you can do consistently and, and know that you're going to score. Leave it to the tactical muscle of this podcast duo to remind us the game state plays a big difference <laughs> yeah. in, in stats. 
All right, up next, we have an absolute treat for you. The free kick set angled to the right of the target, about 40 yards away from the goal that Guzan is protecting. Cross comes in from Mukhtar. It's loose right on top, and there it is! It's Walker Zimmerman! The made in goal! Made in gold! Zimmerman, instant problem mortality! And it is Bedlam on the banks of the Cumberland! As heard on ESPN 102.5, the game that was Nashville SC's inaugural goal in Major League Soccer, called by the man we're talking to next, Nashville SC radio voice John Freeman. He dropped by to talk about this season, what he's seen from this Nashville SC team so far, but also to give you guys a little more insight into his background as a broadcaster, as a soccer fan. Hint, it involves people like Ben Olsen and Claudio Reyna. Had a great conversation with John. Without further ado, let's take you to it. Radio voice of Nashville Soccer Club, John Freeman, joining us for this week's show. You can listen to John on 94.9 FM on game days, home and away. John, thank you so much for joining. Absolutely. And uh, I hope you guys have recovered from the Nashville SC Media Super League match that took place yesterday. Uh, Wes, four and a half miles covered. Is that what I saw on the, the GPS track? Around four. Yeah. And about- what was your top speed, though? Oh, not fast, not fast. And I think maybe two touches per mile was about the the rate. It wasn't much. The muscles are going to take a while to recover. The pride's going to take even longer, I think, after after the performance. It was a workmanlike effort. So congratulations to your team for competing. And Tim, uh, congratulations on on the three points. Thank you. Thank you, John, for scoring, I think, the plurality of our goals, to say the very least. Well, and and John, let's get into that. You have a soccer background, and it was a little sneaky seeing the skills out there. I didn't realize you had had some tools in your arsenal, but I know you did grow up watching those legendary UVA teams and DC United, Bruce Arena leading both of those. How did those early soccer experiences shape not just your clearly demonstrated on-field skill, uh, but also your passion and maybe even your, your desire to broadcast the game? Okay, one, you're way, way over-exaggerating <laughs> my soccer skills. We have to take into account the competition. A rose uh, we, among it thorns. It was the NSC media media <laughs> game. But going back into my background, uh, I've made it no secret. I grew up in, in Virginia. I mean, you guys are looking at me now, and a poster behind me is of Claudio Reyna in Virginia clothes. <laughs> and that's where I got, I got my love of the game. Virginia's a really strong college program. I grew up in a little farm town right outside of, of Charlottesville, and we used to go to games. And uh, I always make this... Uh, you know, argument when uh, you know people say maybe American soccer broadcasters don't have the background that they need to broadcast the sport, and I, I say, man, I've been supporting Virginia since I was five years old. Some of the products that they produce, like Claudio Reyna played for Man City. You know, Ben Olsen was a really good player. Tony Miola played in a World Cup. Um, a lot of these guys, Jeff Agus, like took the U.S. to the World Cup. You know, final eight. So. When I think about the the opportunities I had to fall in love with the game and, and do so early, Virginia kind of operated like a maybe a English second division club with the sure. amount of talent uh, that came through. I think what's interesting about some of those guys that you mentioned is a ton of them, obviously Bruce Arena, but Jeff Agus is still involved with the league. How cool is it to you know have grown up a UVA fan? a UVA grad and seeing kind of the impact more than just player wise that these guys have had on, on us soccer more broadly. It's interesting. They haven't just, you know, played and, and gone into different careers. Virginia um, specifically has been kind of one of the, the building blocks of uh, American soccer. 
uh, from a coaching standpoint. Uh, I mean, you even think about Bob Bradley. Bob Bradley was an assistant at Virginia under Bruce Arena, uh, the same time that Claudia Reyna was there. Um, so these are some major players in, still in U.S. soccer. Bob Bradley, arguably you know, one of the top American coaches. Bruce Arena certainly can say that. Claudia Reyna, the sporting director at Austin FC, you got their first win. Um, there was a lot happening in, in Charlottesville those days. And uh, they were my camp counselors. <laughs> that was the cool <laughs> thing. It was like, uh, if you want to play midfield, go over there with uh, with Ben, uh, Ben Olsen. <laughs> if, any goalkeepers, Tony's over there, uh, Tony Miola. Uh, I mean, there were some really good players that, that came through, and, and we had access to them. They were just normal guys walking around a small town. Tremendous formative experience to be around uh, athletes of that caliber. And then you moved down to Nashville, and you got involved with Nashville SC, I believe before either of us even did from a club coverage standpoint. What was your first <laughs> NSC experience, and would you have imagined back then the club would, would have its current stature? So my first NSC experience... I moved to Nashville before even the U23 team. So before they'd been announced to USL. I remember uh, my wife and I moved into a, a place on West End. And I, I didn't know anyone. <laughs> uh, and she worked a night shift one night. And I just remember taking a walk around uh, Vanderbilt. Uh, you know, nice, well-lit area. And I just went on a walk alone, which sounds so dreary. Uh, and there was an NSC game going on. And I just walked around the stadium. I was like, man, I wish I knew somebody that I could go to a game with. Uh, and, and that was how, uh, uh, how I kind of find out about the team. And then when the USL, uh, was announced, this is about as, you know, 2010s as it gets, I just sent a, a Twitter message to Chris Jones, who's still with the club and said like, Hey, I've broadcasted games before. Uh, I did so with Virginia. I've got a, you know, experience in pretty much any sport and television in particular. And he said, great, I'll take a look. And, uh, I didn't hear from him for about another year. And then I think I got an email maybe on a Tuesday that they needed a broadcaster for Saturday for Nashville SC U23. And I knew I really did. You know, when you get a call or any sort of opportunity in life and you're just like, this is a big deal. Like, this has got to go well. This could end up being something a lot bigger than what it is right now. And I remember preparing for that. I canceled everything that week uh, and just bunkered down and prep for calling a game with a bunch of college amateurs on short notice. And it was enough to stay around for one game and then two more. And then by the time the USL rolled around, uh, I, I got that gig. And thankfully, uh, it's converted all the way to MLS. So I, I might be the only broadcaster in America that's gone from like the fourth division to the second division to the first division, all with the same club. You're the Jamie Watson of broadcasting, man. Yeah, Jamie. Yeah, Jamie. <laughs> Jamie's played them all too, man. Uh, although, thank goodness he didn't show up to the NSC Super League uh, <laughs> match. Otherwise, that would have been uh, quite lopsided for whatever team he was in. You talk about canceling all your plans and prepping for that that amateur match. You know, you and I talk every week. We prep together for these matches. What is your approach? How do you approach each play by play call? What's what's your week of prep look like? And with that, I'm sure you always have in the back of your mind what you want to bring to the audience. What is your approach? What do you want to bring to the audience each match day? My prep pales in comparison to my partners. I don't know about that. <laughs> Usually my week starts on like a Monday morning, waking up to a text that was sent from three AM from West Bowling about some interesting nugget about one of the players on the other team. Uh, so that's how it begins. As a play-by-play -play guy, and it's so cliche to say this, we are storytellers, and I know play-by-play -play guys say that all the time. My biggest uh, focus each week is 
what is the story that we're trying to tell and what is relevant for our audience? Is there somebody on the team that has a big moment coming up? Is there, you know, a revenge match for somebody? Are the fans particularly invested uh, in a match because of a rivalry? So you start with questions and then start shaping the game into how it might answer those questions. Otherwise, there's there's just a lot of um, general prep of who's who, being able to watch a lot of film and identify really quickly because we're on radio. When somebody on their team touches the ball, how do you identify them as fast as possible? Usually it's, you know, what boot color do they wear? What uh, hairstyle uh, are they wearing? Just even the gait of the way the players move to the extent where I might know five players' numbers in the entire Major League Soccer uh, <laughs> rosters that are compiled. Like, I could probably name five or six Nashville players, uh, but if they played a game without numbers on their jerseys, easy. I could pick them apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same for usually the other team. So it's a lot of just visual prep. I mean, radio play-by-play is that ball moves so fast, and if you're thinking about who has the ball, you're not thinking about what words you're going to say. Uh, when they do. So otherwise, you know, I, I just uh, spend a lot of time thinking about the storylines, thinking about identifying the players, and then uh, on game day, physically getting ready. Uh, I know it's silly, but uh, my wife thinks it's hilarious. Uh, vocal warm-ups. Mm-hmm. Uh, I took vocal lessons to avoid losing my voice uh, in games because radio, you're you're cranking out, what, five, six times the, the words that you normally do uh, in TV. So it's a, it's a physical and mental preparation during the week. But Nothing in comparison to, to what the athletes are doing to get ready for the game, but I like to think it's something close to that. Our voices are getting tested this year a little more than they were last, too. Uh, four goals in two matches. The most active attack in Major League Soccer after two weeks. Has that uptick in the team's aggression and attacking mentality made match calls feel different? I know you and I have had this conversation a bit you know, off-air, but it seems to me, at least, that it's just a different atmosphere, a different feel in year two. Yeah, it's so much more wide open. Uh, I don't think anybody would say that that this year hasn't been um, you know, two or three times as entertaining just from a, a spectator um, perspective um, and from a radio perspective. Yeah, it feels almost like, like I, mean, I got to talk to Pete Weber, who's one of my you know broadcasting you know, mentors of, I feel like I'm calling hockey. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the way that some of these games are going on and uh, I actually had the thought the other day, like I was starting to lose my voice a little bit at the end of uh, the Montreal game, um, just because the chances kept flying in and flying in. Um, and I was sitting there, I was like, didn't Pete Weber call like a four overtime match that went till 2 a.m. and he gets the game winning goal and his voice didn't crack. And here I am like not even able to go 80 minutes uh, <laughs> with full vocal integrity. So it's it's been a learning lesson. I, I'm just thrilled with the way that some of these games have gone. You know, I think the results will certainly come, but from a general perspective of just how these games look, um, how they entertain, how they make people feel. And uh, I think we're at a, a really nice level here with this team. And I can see that continuing. Uh, Gary Smith said in his press conference, I want to win the games and I want the fans to be entertained. Right now we got number two. Uh, and I think number one will come shortly. Do you feel like you are approaching it differently? Because I think last year, a lot of people, if NSC went down two goals, you were expecting the game to be over. Do you feel like you have to be more prepared for that game tying goal, maybe even that game winning goal than you might have felt last year? Yeah, did NSC go down two goals last year? You know, it's like very rarely. Yeah. I think like Columbus yeah. on the road, and even when they In did Orlando, go down yeah. two goals, it was like at the end of a game, mm-hmm. like I think Orlando is what, 75th minute DK yeah. for the second time? The goals don't feel as big. And I know that's silly to say, but like 
it's one of the first times that we've had kind of just a an ordinary goal that doesn't completely decide the game. Um, and what I mean by that is like last year, if NSC scored first, pretty much lock it down. <laughs> uh, yeah. At least a point is coming out of that. This year, you know, the first goals of these games have been like, okay, on to the next one. Let's go. Uh, pick it up faster. Uh, here we come. Uh, we need a second. Uh, and they haven't felt as big of of release moments uh, in the way that a, a typical NSC goal did feel last year, where one goal usually meant three points or at least one one point. We haven't gotten that that late winner yet, which has been part of the DNA of the club for as long as I've been calling games. I think we're we're definitely trending in that direction, though, yeah. uh, and, and I could see one coming pretty soon. There have been some of those memorable late winners, and a lot of your calls from those were ex- extremely memorable and have been the soundtrack of those moments for a lot of fans. Is there one that you look back on in the first three years of USL slash MLS in these first couple matches as your your favorite moment, maybe your iconic NSC moment? Man, uh, we've had such a, a luxury of them. <laughs> you know, like I've had 10 years of calls in three. If you broadcast 10 years of, of soccer, you might get you know, five or six of these just epic moments. And Nashville SC had like three in one month back in the USL days. Um, I, I think the the one that's really special, and, and they all are special, it's, it's kind of like having children. Like you don't have a favorite. They're just all great. Right, guys? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know. of course. I, I think the the first game, just because when you think about that, that Walker-Zimmerman goal and everything surrounding it and the variables, that was kind of the chance. Um, to call something really memorable that that uh, you know is going to last forever, and with the radio call, you know we didn't know if they were going to score that day. And the next game is is on the road, so um, getting to call that goal in the game that it happened um, with the feeling in that stadium, and then the release of thinking like, man, you know, if this had been at Portland the next weekend, it just wouldn't have been the same. Um, and then obviously they didn't score at Portland the next week. You know, it could have been the first goal in Nashville SC history if Walker Zimmerman didn't score against Atlanta. Could have been like three months later at FC Dallas in an empty stadium. Um, so when we think about just how that that night worked, uh, how that goal worked, how it tied the match, um, the excitement of it, uh, all of these things had to go right for that one to happen. Um, and, uh, you know, selfishly, no one can, can take it away from me. I got to call the first goal in, in Nashville SC history. And, you know, if, if I'm have something on my, my gravestone, maybe that's it. John, your last John Freeman got to call first goal, uh, in MLS history. And, and, you know, that's a pretty good life to live. How do you view MLS as a conduit for the growth of American voices in soccer broadcasting? And are there some that you look to as gold standards that you think young American broadcasters should emulate? MLS is a melting pot of people who come from all different backgrounds to support the league and the club. Um, so you might have somebody who wakes up uh, on a Saturday morning uh, and is used to watching, you know, Premier League, Serie A, Champions League, uh, midweek, um, and they're presented with a certain amount of um, you know European style broadcasters. On the other end, um, you've got a lot of teams, uh, and Nashville, one of them, that has uh, a large um, South American or Central American or uh, Mexican Hispanic background uh, supporters who have their own 
idea of of how a game should be called. So when you're an American, you're kind of caught in between of what is the American style of broadcasting. And I don't necessarily know if that's been decided yet. You know, all I can be is is myself. Um, I can't say, oh, I'm going to tailor my calls towards this audience or that audience. But it also makes it impossible to meet the expectations of everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I think about who I personally like, uh, as as you said, to to emulate uh, that are American, I think uh, Jake Ziven at, at Portland is you know a wonderful combination of of both of those styles that I talked about. Uh, I also think John Strong has really you know navigated that line. You know, I would say that John Strong's call is as close to you can get as to a uh, you know Liga MX, the Mexican league call, um, as you can get while still being English, mm. you know, using the English words. I just try and um, deliver my own call and and hope that people like it, but also go in every day um, knowing that I I can't meet the expectations of an entire world of of styles. Uh, I was even talking to, you know, somebody who, who grew up in the Middle East uh, and they say, you know, their calls, you know, in Arabic, when somebody scores, they like literally start reciting poetry about the moment. Wow. Um, and I, I think that's great. You know, if I could, if I had the, the brain power to be able to do that, <laughs> awesome. Uh, but then somebody else might listen to that and be like, who is this guy reciting poetry about Ani Mukhtar after he scored a penalty? <laughs> so again, you know, you emulate and you, you take a little bit of, of what you like from everyone, but in, in the end, you got to be your own broadcaster. Hani takes it from the spot. It's an accurate shot. Put in the goal, Nashville's soul revealed in word and thought. I don't like this. Wow. Oh, I that. <laughs> wow. That did not meet my expectations. <laughs> Nor did it meet my own. All right. All right. We're going to scrap that from the edit, most likely. Uh, last question, I think, for, for me, you mentioned that, you know, as a play-by-play broadcaster, you seek to tell the story of each match. But there's a broader narrative coming into it as well of the story of a team and of a season if you could sum it up in a few words, what is the story of Nashville's second season in Major League Soccer to date? They put themselves in a tough spot after such a successful season last year. Um, no one, uh, you know, maybe even us included, thought they would have as much success. No one had them in the Eastern Conference um, semifinals. So um, typically the narrative going into year two of any expansion season uh, is, you know, get into the playoffs or you know, improve a little bit going into, you know, your big season with, with a new stadium coming up. And for Nashville SC, it's kind of a question of, can they improve uh, on last year? Can they prove that it wasn't a fluke season? And I think this is one of the rare teams that isn't backing in to a new stadium. Um, think about Cincinnati. Year two, they, they're backing in to their new stadium in year three. They hadn't had a lot of success in year two. Um, a lot of the new stadiums that are being built, uh, that's been the narrative uh, for an expansion team of, oh, if we can just get into that new stadium, that's when things really blossom. Um, and for Nashville SC, I think they've, for you know a lot of different narratives, they've proven those to, to be false. They're ahead of schedule in the way that things are going on the field. So when I think about um, the storylines of this season, uh, it really is of what is this team capable of in year two? Where are the limits for this team? And everybody around the club says, man, if we can get to the playoffs, we've got playoff experience. 
like we got last year and we've got players that we know are committed to the cause, who knows um, where this this season could go. Um, and right now, you know, it's it's trending in a good direction. Just need to get some wins. Well, John, it was a chore to share the pitch with you this past weekend, but a pleasure every week to share the broadcast booth. Thank you for joining us today and, and lending us your insight and best of luck in the season moving forward. I'm just glad you didn't go two-footed on me. There are a couple chances it was and you held back. It was tempting. <laughs> Thanks, man. Obviously, you both know John really well, and you're right next to him in the booth at home games, so there's not a lot that you and I are going to learn from him about necessarily even his background, although we got some good nuggets from John today. Um, I was really interested to hear his comments, and I think you probably have a similar experience with this, and, and commenting not with a voice necessarily inspired by by English or or Italian or Latin American influences, but by kind of melting it all together that, you know, the great American melting pot applies not just to our country, but to soccer. And that's something that has allowed him to find his own voice. And I think, again, you probably share some of those experiences. And I think that that uh, extension into the commentary booth from from kind of that American melting pot situation is something that I, th- I found just absolutely fascinating. From my perspective, I'm influenced by John Ward, the uh, longtime mm-hmm. University of Tennessee voice of the Vols. When I was five years old, I decided that's who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do. And, and ultimately, of course, you don't get anywhere by just carbon copying somebody, especially a legend that you, you really can't pull that off anyway. You have to find your own voice. And, and John and I have a have an ongoing text thread uh, where we will listen to other MLS broadcasts and, and praise what we like that we see elsewhere in the league. And many of those broadcasters are are British, many are Latin American, many are American. I think MLS provides a unique platform. And he's, as he said, a way to blend those voices. And it's a question we ask of, of the larger soccer community in the U.S. You know, what is the word authentic? And there is no one definition. You have to be true to yourself. And I think John does an exceptional job bringing his true voice and identity to the microphone. It is a pleasure to, to work with him. All right, well, let's go outside in and let's look at the tournament that was full of promise for Nashville SC before the year started and now looks a little more doubtful for a couple reasons. Number one, Nashville SC's early points total. And number two, the fact that the tournament may not even happen. Tim, U.S. Open Cup postponed indefinitely from its slated start in May due to logistical and financial challenges. Do you think at this point it's even going to happen? It'll be really, really interesting to watch. Obviously, U.S. soccer um, holds it annually and until last year that it had been held for 106 straight years they're very proud of holding it annually if you end up holding it in the format that they were going to end up having to hold it with only 32 teams um, and then it, it dropped down to only 16 teams as they kind of pushed it back once more is it even the same tournament it's not an open cup at that point it's, it's a very interesting one and does that mean that they're a little bit less invested in, in making it up later in the year? We'll have to see. And I, I would imagine, especially with a busy summer for MLS teams, that there might be some pressure on the Federation to maybe scrap it or, or push it back until after the season and say, hey, how about instead of what you had, teams that don't make the CONCACAF Champions League or something like that make it? Yeah, instead of an open cup, it was going to be more like a U.S. sippy cup, right? Just kind of a small opening. <laughs> Good contents inside, but uh, a smaller opening than, than we're used to. Between that and and the challenges for lower division clubs especially, you yeah. know, I think the speculation we've heard is that MLS clubs can pick up at almost a moment's notice and play a match and travel, right. whatever, but the smaller clubs really are going to have a tough time sustaining that cost, and it could impact you know their leagues as well. Uh, it's it's just it's an unfortunate situation. I would even though Nashville still has a chance to qualify, and I would love to see the boys in gold be a part of that. I would be in favor of them coming back better than ever next year, and maybe not trying to to water down the tournament this season. Yeah, I think once you break the streak, as as happened in twenty twenty, 
it's no longer quite as imperative. And mm-hmm. I think, especially with MLS teams dealing with the international breaks that are going to happen this year, dealing with the Gold Cup, um, the Olympics, unfortunately, uh, not for the Americans, but but some of these some of these teams have um, Mexican youth internationals on their teams and things like that. I would imagine that again, it's probably just not in the best interest for almost anyone involved. Now that the streak, now that you can no longer say this is the 108th edition of it, it it just doesn't have quite the same gravitas or importance to me. And to fill people in on what it takes to get into the U.S. Open Cup, the top eight U.S.-based, of course, MLS teams, after three matches, uh, we're going to qualify for that tournament. Nashville SC currently ranks 17th in points, 16th among American teams. But, of course, it's all tight, right? The cut line right now is three points. Eight teams sit on that mark. So, basically, Nashville need to beat Miami this coming weekend and get a little bit of help elsewhere. Real Salt Lake, a team that's standing in the way only on one match right now, whereas everybody else has played two, and they have those three points. And it leads to Robbie Ace's question on Twitter. After two games, he says, we've seen Nashville SC battle back to earn draws. We're all pointing to the fancy stats that show a lot of promise, but would the narrative be different if the Open Cup hadn't been? And he says canceled, but we know it's it's more indefinitely delayed. Would that narrative be different? And maybe would, would people be a little bit more frustrated, Tim, with that slow start, with two points being 17th in MLS? Yeah, I think especially the way that Nashville SC talked about it in the preseason, they were emphasizing these first three games. They wanted to be one of those eight MLS teams in the U.S. Open Cup. And then uh, when the news came down that it it may very well not happen and and at the very least is a a bit less imperative of a goal to strive for, uh, it, it definitely does kind of take some of the, I guess, given the results, take some of the some of the downer off of those first two games. But, you know, it feels like you've lost four out of 102 available points over the course of 34 games rather than the four out of out of the first nine points that you really needed. And I think that that does make it seem like the first two games, which disappointing though they were, are a little bit less damaging than it felt like. Let's head to the mailbag. You guys blew us up again. John Jacobs brings up a question that it relates to a, a, an outside-the-club situation but ultimately ties back to Nashville. He says, with European football currently in flames and Inter-Miami getting their hands smacked, and we'll clarify that in a minute, is this the perfect time for MLS to review DP rules, designated player rules, and allow owners to try and steal as much talent from Europe as possible, or do they stay out of it? Now, to clarify Miami's situation, they were charged with failing to comply last year with roster and budget rules by essentially miscategorizing Blaise Matuidi. came in and should have been classified based on his expense and salary as a designated player. He would have been their fourth, and clubs only get three of those. And so as a result, they've had to release one of those players, and they're going to face other sanctions as well. We just don't know what. Maybe it's a a, a penalty in terms of general allocation money, some other limits moving forward. Uh, So Tim, just wanted to set the stage and clarify that for folks who may not be as familiar with it. And now I'll I'll let you answer that question. It would be wise for for MLS to maybe relax some of those rules and allow more of an influx of talent. The reality of the situation is that MLS ownership um, from club to club is basically better than uh, ownership of, of European teams from club to club, basically across the board. And a lot of the richest English Premier League teams are owned by people who also own an MLS club. So it's something that, um, yeah, there's a lot of financial heft behind MLS. The issue is the roster rules kind of facilitate that the less uh, loose with their purse strings owners 
kind of get to dictate that the richer owners or the owners more willing to spend don't have the opportunity to do that. And I think, you know, as much as in Arthur Blank, who owns Atlanta, or as much as LAFC's big ownership group would like to have the opportunity to bring in more of these guys, bring in more star power, bring in more quality, especially um, when you look at a, a club like LAFC that has hit on so many of their signings. They would love to be able to do that. But um, when you look at the Colorado Rapids of the world, when you look at the Real Salt Lakes of the world, they have a say in this too, and they don't really want to make that happen. There are two premises on which MLS is built. Number one, it's an owner-driven league. And number two, it's all about parity. And those policies, as you mentioned, led by some of the smaller clubs will always dictate that. I'll ask you the question, though. Would MLS be better off having less parity, more top-end dominance, but also having more of that high-end talent at some of those clubs? You would lose something that makes MLS special, but the question is whether you gain enough from adding you know, an additional David Beckham, as the DP rule was initially called, the, the David Beckham rule. Do you, I guess, net out positive from that? I think the overall quality of competition, because teams are so close in caliber most of the time, um, there are obvious exceptions like FC Cincinnati the past two years or even LAFC two years ago was was head and shoulders above a lot of people. But those exceptions are fun because the league is generally pretty even. And I think that there is some value in that. Yes, there's also value in um, maybe having a, a Manchester City and a Manchester United and a Liverpool. They're always awesome. And then every once in a while, a Leicester City comes in. You know, people can have different preferences, but I think for the overall health of the league, it makes more sense to have the parity. And we could have a whole episode or a whole series on MLS roster rules and on that philosophical question that, that we don't just dare discussed. me. Don't dare me, Wes. <laughs> Let's do it. Hey, I, you know, the offseason's a long way away, but I think there's some potential certainly to have some of those some of those conversations. And and yet it'd be a much shorter podcast if we were to discuss the likelihood of any of these things ever happening anytime soon. I mean, it's a, it's an owners-driven league and any changes that are going to open up and liberalize spending in the past have come at great effort and sometimes cost to the players' union and they lose other bargaining chips in the process. A key driver, though, toward opening things up a bit could be the, uh, the new league TV deal, existing contracts expire after the 2022 season. The league's hoping a new deal can bring in significant revenue, especially as the 2026 World Cup makes the game surge in popularity here in the U.S. That's the hope. They're banking on that. The existing CBA can be extended through 2027. So I don't think we can expect, of course, they've had two renegotiations in the past calendar and past year, but I don't think we can expect uh, major changes there. Uh, Scott reaches out and says, as disappointing as letting in four goals against Cincinnati and Montreal is, he says, I feel like we should be scoring more too. Do we think Rios would be a better sub than Sapong has shown so far? Yeah, I'm on the record as a big time Rios fan dating back to his time at North Carolina FC before Nashville even signed him before we even really realized that was a possibility. I don't know if late game super sub is necessarily his strength. He's a guy who kind of needs to feel his way into a game a little bit. And you can do that as a substitute, but I don't know that necessarily he'd be a noted upgrade over Sapong because Sapong does seem to, at least so far in a two game sample size, um, he's been a starter at most of his stops in the past, but he seemed to thrive in that super sub role. And, and some of the things that Sapong is good at are not necessarily Rios's strengths. He's a set piece cross header type of guy and Rios can score those ways. We've seen him score with his head in MLS if I recall correctly, even. 
but it's a different style of headed goal that I think he's going for. It's not crowded box, jump up over guys and slam at home as we're chasing a goal, as, as we discussed previously with whipping and crosses. The reality is that it unfortunately doesn't really matter whether Rios would be better or not because he's not healthy right now. But he absolutely has something to give this team, whether that's off the bench or whether that's in two striker formations or the occasional start up front. I think we, we do CJ Sapong a discredit to undersell what he absolutely. can bring to the squad. Absolutely. I think, you know, he put, took three shots in that Cincinnati match. Wasn't as active late against Montreal, but uh, I think it only is a matter of time before we see him rotated in and starting a match and supporters will get to see exactly what he brings to the table for this team. Yeah, and he has 71 regular season MLS goals in his career. It's not, like, it's not like you're taking him out to put in Rios because you're taking out a guy who doesn't have a proven track record. You could run a four four two with this team if you could figure out a couple of questions in, in midfield, such as you know playing Hani wide if you're comfortable doing that on one side, and put two strikers up top. And we've seen Nashville run a four four two late in matches as well yeah. and trying to chase games. Haven't seen that the first two games this year, but certainly mm-hmm. is something that we could see them do in a match where they felt like they maybe didn't want to press quite as much up top and wanted to to have you know two hulking figures. And in that case. Rios is going to factor into that conversation as will Sapong and, of course, John Arcadiz. Uh, John Mueller asks, what will it take for Dave Romney to be actually appreciated? Zim gets all the attention, but Romney is his perfect foil. I don't hey, know. Man. I don't know. Yeah. I, I've hey, been we're beating the Romney drum. I have been beating the Romney drum for a while now. I said Romney was probably Nashville's defensive MVP last year. Now, that's not a discredit to Walker Zimmerman, but a lot of what Walker does is score on the other end of the pitch. It's not necessarily a defensive skill. Um, I know that uh, Romney got a lot of a guff from the stat heads last year because uh, he said when he was signed that LA Galaxy was better with him on the pitch than they were with him off it. And you kind of have to parse the numbers just quite right there because Romney almost exclusively played in away games for the Galaxy, which really mm. skewed the stats. It's, MLS teams have incredible away disadvantage. So that's something that uh, he was maybe not quite clear enough about to, to get the credit for being right about that. But I, I've loved Dave Romney since since seeing him shortly after he signed. So that's something that uh, I think I, I can't tell you the answer because I've been trying to credit him for a long time and he just hasn't gotten it. And when he came to Nashville, he said, you know, that, that he really felt like he'd been disregarded and disrespected. And you referred to some of those comments a second ago. Uh, I, I think anybody who watches more than one or two games is going to see his value. It doesn't always jump off the page, although he did have a nice header goal last uh, last year against Orlando. Almost had one in the opener against Cincinnati. But it's what he does to clean up messes that is, of course, what he's paid to do and what he does so well. Last year he ranked third in Major League Soccer in clearances, one of less than a half dozen players, field players at least, to play every minute of the season. And this year, he leads MLS in a couple stats as well. Sixth in aerials one, seventh in progressive passing distance as he's looked up the pitch, and part of that's chasing the game, playing long passes. And he did come within an inch of giving NSC its winner against Cincinnati. So if you want us to argue with you on that one, John, we're not going to do it. We will jump fully on, on your train on that one because— You can embrace consensus with us, man. We, we bring Come on in. Join the party, the, the consensus uh, trio in this case. Uh, John also asks, how much am I jumping the gun to think of Luke Hawkinson as NSC's McTominay, a homegrown central mid with a jack-of-all-trades ability in the middle of the park? Am I hoping too much that he's the surprise breakout player of the season? He'd give valuable central midfield depth 
for sure. Maybe we'll lose our grip on consensus for a second. Maybe a little too much hope to think he's the surprise breakout player of the season, Tim, but certainly the club feels really good about what he brings to the table. You know, he was involved in six goals for Charlotte last season. He's done enough to be on the bench for the first two contests and and to get in late in that uh, latest match. And keep in mind, he was on the bench and Rodrigo Pinheiro was not. The guy that they're Again, optimistic about long term, but is not going to jump in and, and just dominate right away. Uh, so I think, Tim, they've built up a trust factor with Luke there, and it's only a matter of time before he continues to to amplify his contributions to this team. Yeah, and he came on as, as a defensive replacement, basically. So that's something to watch because he was almost exclusively an offensive player for Charlotte Independence. Played a little bit of striker even, but was a, a winger or a, a wing back in a 3-4-3. He's a guy who's not going to play that same sort of role at the Major League Soccer level, if we're being honest. But that's not because he's not a good enough player. It's because he's, he's just better suited physically to a different role in MLS. I think it's going to take a little bit of time and adjustment to get ready to play a little more centrally, play a little more defensively. And what a luxury he can be if he can be kind of a, in a, a, a slightly more attacking-minded version of Todd Ryan and Nunga and Matt LaGrasa, who, who bring that more defensive edge in central midfield. If he can have some Dax McCarty vision and tendencies, not not imposing that expectation on him, please. MLS legend, uh, not not saying that's what he's going to be. But if he can start to think a little more like Dax and, and learn from him, or even what Anibal can do, can do moving forward, I think that, that can only be a positive for Nashville. Well, thank you for your questions. Keep them coming. Just tweet at us at TN's West Bowling at Club Country USA. Doesn't have to wait until after the next match. Send them now if you got them. And if they're evergreen enough, we'll certainly try to work them into a future episode. And we have a log of some that we've noted, by the way, in our in our back and forth that we're uh, considering when to best answer them. Uh, but certainly you are on our minds. All right, time for the final whistle. Tim, what have you been reading or listening to lately? For me, it's a it's a listen this week. It's formerly BSI, the podcast. I almost called it the wrong thing right off the bat. It's now called The Soccer Soup. Uh, it's former pros interviewing guys who are both still in and, and some out of the game. Uh, it's formerly hosted by uh, Benny Failhaber, Sal Zizzo, and Ike Opara. Benny and Ike are busy now. So <laughs> so, so uh, Sal has taken on some, some other contributors, including Alan Gordon, who is... Uh, one of the Bash brothers in that incredible San Jose Earthquakes team. Um, so uh, they're interviewing a bunch of really interesting guys. Pablo Mascherini, a lot of people will remember as a former U.S. men's national team player. Also a former Colorado Rapid and now the head coach of Real Salt Lake. But I, what I found very interesting from the most uh, recent interview that I've listened to, there's actually been a couple episodes since then, is that Pablo called Gary Smith a better coach than Bob Bradley in terms of the coaches that he had played for in his career. Bob Bradley is obviously somebody that we have a ton of respect for. I, I probably have even more respect for him as a national team coach than a lot of people do. Certainly he has uh, had a renaissance as LAFC's head coach, but I think that's a pretty interesting uh, little little credit to to Mr. Smith there. It's a huge credit. And Mastroini, a player who not only loved his time playing for Gary, but also traveled in and consulted with the USL club uh, at least once, I believe, uh, and mm-hmm. kind of have that Steve Guppy role. Steve did the same, and then Steve ended up, of course, being on the on the touchline now for Nashville SC for his second season coaching wing players uh, primarily. But Pablo also came in and spent some time with Nashville SC. High praise, certainly, for, uh, for Nashville SC's gaffer. For my recommendation, I'll go back, uh, as I did last week, to a documentary that's now a couple of years old, and that is Take Us Home, Leeds United. There's something in my soul that just claws and grasps onto clubs that are long-suffering and urges them to be great again. 
And part of it perhaps is that I grew up around the University of Tennessee in the golden era of UT football. And Tim, I know you can relate to a once proud empire fallen, although the balls have fallen even further than the Wolverines of, of Michigan here in recent years. And I don't know that there's a path forward just yet that I can see for Tennessee, but, but Leeds United supporters had to feel the same way after being outside of the Premier League. Of course, they're back in it now. But if you want to really appreciate where they are now and easily consolidating their position in the Premier League this season, no threat of relegation due to some attractive soccer from Marcelo Bielsa, look back a couple of years ago when they were still in the height of their misery. And you know what? Season two of the documentary where they actually get promoted, not nearly as good. It's the one where they suffer. That's great. It's just great uh, with all apologies. That's what makes the Sunderland one that you recommended uh, last week pretty good is that there's a little bit of uh, schadenfreude in the misery of others, I think. There's beauty in conflict. If you want to understand the culture of a place, I know I said the same for Sunderland last week, that that has lived and mainly died with its team. And it makes the success they're having now. You don't have to be a lead supporter, certainly to appreciate the, the richness that they're experiencing yeah. now after the misery they had for, for two decades. And, and also Bielsa ball is awesome. Just yeah. watch them play. It's very fun soccer to watch for sure. It is incredible. And they spent some money on this documentary. They went back to Newell's old boys down in Argentina and talked to to those at Marcelo Estadio Marcelo Bielsa. Uh, he left such a legacy there before he even got to Leeds. Uh, it really is just a, an amazing documentary. If you're a soccer nut or if you just like good filmmaking, it's extremely well done. It's on Amazon Prime, I believe. All right, Tim, your bold prediction for Nashville and Miami this weekend, the expansion derby, uh, or as I called it, the debutante derby uh, between two teams who are now in their sophomore season. So is it the sophomore slugfest now? I don't know. You can come up with yeah. a better name than that. What's your bold prediction? <laughs> yeah, yeah. let's just we'll, – we'll worry about the nomenclature later. My bold prediction is that Nashville finally, at long last, takes its first lead of the year only to suffer a letdown by giving up an equalizer to Miami and finishing the first three games of the year with just three points to show for it, a draw in each of the first three games. I could certainly see that happening. This is a Miami team that went down to Philadelphia 1-0, came back and beat them on the road. They seemed, at least in that contest, to have a little more composure and poise and and have their wits about them. Uh, We'll see if that lasts, but an encouraging sign for them, for sure. And I absolutely reserve the right to change my opinion by the time I preview Inter-Miami on clubcountryusa.com. Which you should definitely check out. And uh, that wouldn't just be a... Uh, sticking his finger up in the wind and changing his opinion. That would be rooted in tactics and expertise, all of which Tim will bring you on the website in even greater quantity than he does here on the show. I will say I'll stick with my tradition of of not making a pick, even though I'm not going to be on this weekend's call. Uh, the, the local TV folks move to radio when national TV comes to town. So Tony Husband, Jamie Watson, Kelly Glenn Denning will be on the call, ESPN 94.9. John, who we heard from earlier tonight, will be the studio host for that. Um, I'll be on a golf trip. My prediction will be that Nashville gets outshot for the first time this year, and it's a good thing. I think that they score. They get a, an early first-half goal, and Miami ends up chasing the game. I won't go so far as to say that Miami's going to equalize. I don't want to just totally copy your prediction. But I do think Nashville gets on the board early and harnesses some of the early um, attacking momentum it's it's had, really, from the 20th minute to the 45th in both of those games. And... Miami has to chase, and even last year we saw that in the one nothing Nashville win at home against Miami in the regular season. You saw Nashville go up relatively early in the game, and, and Miami have to fight to get back in it and probably should have won that game, honestly. I think we see a similar contest. 
you know, it feels like it could be a two, one type of win for Nashville, but, but I'll, I'll stay away from an official prediction. And, and as you mentioned previously, the game States have a huge effect on, on which team shoots more often, which team accrues more expected goals. So I like that prediction because if Nashville's leading, um, they're going to sit back and absorb a little pressure and allow some of those shots and, and trust Joe Willis in that back line to not let them be too dangerous. And wouldn't that be a best case scenario for Gary Smith taking an early lead and then getting to test the defense in a life or death situation and, and hoping that they can, they can hold off an opponent in the second half. It, it will resemble a lot more uh, certainly of what we saw last year from this club. Oh, well, thank you for listening to us this week. Visit clubcountryusa.com if you want to get even more in-depth than we, than we already are. And don't forget to rate, review, subscribe. But more importantly, um, tell a friend about the podcast if you're enjoying it. Um, follow us on Twitter. We are pretty interactive, podcast-related. So, uh, yeah, give us a follow on all those uh, social media devices and, and have a good time with it. Special thanks to Moon Taxi for the opening and closing music and to ESPN 94.9 and 102.5 The Game for the radio highlights. We will see you next week, and we'll talk to you in the meantime on Twitter. So long.